Hey, y'all. Hey, can I say hi? Yeah, uh, sure. Okay, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, uh, this is a microphone, so it's, it's recording. So I'm gonna go to each of you, and I just want you to say your name. Yes, my name is Sin. I'm 22 years old, and I live in Hampton, Virginia. All right, anything else you wanna tell uh, about yourself? Just enjoy myself at home and reading books with my mom. So I think I can say. Okay, awesome. All right. I don't know when he Mason. Hey, Mason. I'm, I'm uh, 19. I'm a job. I haven't I have, have no work. Thank you, Mason. All right. Mm-hmm. What's your name? I am Jimmy Frazier. I'm 22 years old. I'm in Irvine, California. I am a board of Four Club 21. Um, interesting fact about myself. Um, I uh, I'm a great person. I'm a great communicator, and I want the I want the whole world to know this. I have a girlfriend with Dallas Drum, and uh, my interests are working with kids with all different intellectual disabilities. Very cool, very cool. What's your name? I'm Amadou Presby. I am 18 years old, turning 19 in two months. I live in Costa Mesa, California, and one interesting fact about me is this man that talked earlier is my boyfriend, and I want the whole world to know that too. The whole world <laughs> is going to know that. Good. <laughs> That's good. Awesome. Awesome. What's your name? Um, my name is Sam Nikis. I'm 14 years old. My interest is, um, it's like having a girlfriend, but mom says no, because I'm not in the real world yet. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to. My hobbies are like swimming and hanging out with my disabilities. Like judging some pe- people, and like an autism. I want them to have to a higher level. So I just want them to have good teaching and how to learn how to do good things. Thanks, Sevi. Those are some great goals. Well, it was great meeting all of you. Uh, again, my name is Tim. Um, I'm recording for a podcast. I'm Tim Viegas with the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education, and you are listening to Inclusion Stories, our podcast series that tells the stories of families educators, and school systems on their journey to full and authentic inclusive education for each and every learner. And before we cue the intro song, thanks to Yazzie, Mason, Jeremy, Aubrey, and Sevi for kicking us off. Here we go. Chapter four, everybody's in, no exceptions. I consider Pasadena, California, my hometown. 
it's where I spent a lot of time in my youth. I, I went to high school close by in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountains. My wife and I had our first apartment within walking distance to Colorado Boulevard, where we could watch the Rose Parade on crisp and cool New Year's Day mornings. And for this stop on the Inclusion Stories itinerary, we are at Lake Avenue Church for the Tools for the Journey Conference presented by Club 21, the very church I went to when I was a teenager. I tell you folks, sometimes things come full circle. Club 21 is an outstanding organization. Their mission is to provide the educational tools and resources that enable individuals with Down syndrome to be fully included. And their conference is amazing. You really should go sometime. It's late January 2023, and I'm here at the Tools Conference on a beautiful, sunny day in Southern California to spread the word about our upcoming podcast series, Inclusion Stories. Maybe you've heard of it. And to get some good tape. In just a second, you'll hear from Kristen and Sevi, who you met at the beginning, as well as Pam, who are navigating what inclusion looks like in high school. Kristen Enriquez. I'm Sam Enriquez. I'm 14 years old. I love how many people in my life because I went as a connection. Um, I just feel like I belong to my school and have a family and friends. I just want have my own support, but they don't give me that support. Are you talking about like right now in high school? Yeah. Yeah. How is high school going? It's going better than I thought from last semester. Because the last semester was pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think you you said that beautifully. What was what was rough about it? Um, you know, anytime you start over, there's a transition, and we've had a lot of those in Sevi's life, and and we're always willing to give grace. But this has been really a, a challenge in terms of mindset. Um, Sevi's right to belong and people's willingness to think through the supports that he needs to allow that belonging to be meaningful. Um, And so it's been discouraging because no matter how many years of successful inclusion education he has behind him, he still has to earn it every year. And as he gets older and older and needs to start having those conversations for himself and doesn't doesn't and shouldn't want me to be the one to have them for him. I, I worry about what that looks for his future. So you're in the middle of your freshman year. Is that right, Sevi? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What classes do you take? I'm taking career. That's my new one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in drama. I'm also in it. Um, I'm in ASL and uh, language arts and all the classes that yes. I have. Math. Ugh, stupid math. <laughs> Bio. Bias. Biology is a tiny bit good. Yeah. And PE. Yeah, PE is better. So there were some things that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I think, you know, most people in life, they have to defend their failures. 
but Savvy has to defend his successes. Oh, that's interesting. And it just seems so incredibly unfair, you know, and inequitable that that the person who has the least powerful voice has the most defending that he has to do to to be given the right to have his place. Right. It's like um, it's basically the idea that if there is a success, there has to be some sort of explanation. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Like it's a fluke. Right. Right. It's not expected. It's not celebrated. It's not looked at as an opportunity to build on to keep going. It's 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 questioned. Right. Right. It's questioned. I think the other issue is, as I really think about his journey, there has never been one person who has experienced Sevi and his opportunities at inclusive education or inclusive opportunities in the community who has come back to me and said, you shouldn't have done that. That was the wrong thing. He didn't learn. Not one in 14 years, but every single year, it's the people who haven't done it yet who are the ones we need to convince and the ones who get to make the decisions about whether or not you know our vision is something that they're going to embrace and try to support and and collaborate on or if they're going to make a different recommendation. What what are you kind of looking forward to for the the rest of the year? So we have the first semester behind us. That was a huge learning experience and a huge learning curve. High school's different. You know, it is different. He did not fail any of his classes, which was a huge victory, but he was very unhappy with his grades. He has never in his experience seen grades like that. He went from being on the honor roll in middle school every semester to ending with a D minus, a D plus, and a C minus, I believe. And then the other grades were in the A and B range. He was very disappointed. So it was, but it was a learning opportunity where we had to to say, we're not changing our end goal. Um, But we're going to change the details a little bit of what we focus on. Our goal shifted from focusing on the grades to focusing on not having to repeat classes. Yeah. You know, and I think that was the first time he's ever been involved in those conversations. Certainly my husband and I have had to have those conversations, but it was the first time he went through that process with us. Right. And in the end, he was able to compartmentalize it where he was able to celebrate that he didn't fail any classes, but he still was disappointed that he didn't get the grades that he wanted. And so we were able to to set some goals about things we were going to try to do this semester to make things better for him. We're doing the best we can with what we have, but we certainly don't have access to everything that he would need in order to really make uh, the kind of difference I think he's capable of. Pam Grassadonio, and I'm the First Steps Coordinator at Club 21. I am the mom of two girls. My oldest is 19 and a sophomore in college. And then my youngest, her name's Amanda, and she's 14 years old, and she has Down syndrome, and she's a freshman in high school. When we went to our transition IEP, 
I had no idea what to expect. For the first three years, everybody's like, she's so cute. She's amazing. She's doing great. She's making great progress. And it feels great. Like you have this great community. And so moving into the school district, I thought that they would have the same feelings about my daughter. That was not the case. Uh, I went into my IEP and they said, we're recommending a special ed preschool program. That it was connected to a preschool with typical peers. There were times in the day where they were included, but no meaningful inclusion. I mean, they were just physically in the same space. I went to the kindergarten IEP and they offered a moderate to severe placement for her levels, for her safety. They told me every reason why this was probably the only place where she would be successful. And I went with the placement with the moderate to severe. And the first day of kindergarten, the teacher gave us a paper and they said, oh, this is a list of words that we work on in the kindergarten year, like sight words, the first sight words, but it's very unlikely that she'll even get halfway through this. And they are saying this to me before she has even spent one day in the classroom. And I know 100% in my heart that I made a mistake. And so then I'm like, what do I do? We ended up calling an IEP and I asked for change of placement and we ended up having to go through arbitration and we became fully included for first grade. And we had an amazing experience. The teacher was awesome. Everything was great. Being fully included, it, it wasn't easy, but it was, it worked all through elementary. And then when we went to middle school, they were like, oh, she can't do this anymore because the gap is wider. It's going to be too hard for her. So they offered the moderate to severe again, which I declined. And so then we get to high school. And once again, the district says she needs to do the moderate to severe. Her school right now has over 4,000 kids. It's massive. It's overwhelming for me to go to. And so they said to me, they're like, oh, this is going to be way too much for her. There's 4,000 kids here. I don't know. It might not be that safe for her. How's she going to find her way around? We need to really focus on her life skills. How's she going to go to the grocery store when she goes up? And one thing about Amanda, so her reading is grade level, but her math today as 14 years old, if you ask her to, you could hold a nickel and a quarter and ask her which one's a quarter and she's not going to be able to tell you. But if you ask her to walk into Starbucks with her Starbucks app and buy you a coffee, she can do that in a second. So here we are. We did the IP. They recommended the moderate to severe. We declined it. She's at her home school. She's doing amazing. I actually just got a note yesterday from her English teacher. She said, we're doing Romeo and Juliet. Amanda was the role of the nurse. She goes, I was so proud of her. She stood up in front of the room and she read her role and she did the whole thing without any help. And she did it with enthusiasm and she was so proud of herself. And her art teacher started crying in the IEP and said, 
it's beautiful like the way Amanda approaches art and her creativity and then at the end of the IEP after everyone everyone said she's amazing she's a joy she's such a pleasure to have in our classroom and then they said but she can't stay (laughs) she needs to go to the life skills class and so that's where this that's where we left off just um I think two weeks ago how are you feeling right now about that so here's what I have to say I um when when I was in that kindergarten IEP and they sprung it on me about how Amanda needs to be in special ed and not just special ed, but moderate to severe. And I started crying in the IEP meeting. And that's the only IEP meeting I've ever cried in because now I feel like one of, one of the, one of the reasons that I have, that I do this job and I have so much passion for helping these families is because I know for sure that I went into that room um, alone. I mean, with my husband, but with only the the knowledge that I had, and that I felt I didn't have. I felt like it was me against the school district, and now here I am. I'm like I have all of us against all of you, and you know what? I'm gonna win. Like I'm, I know what the law is. I know what my rights are. I know that she's fully succeeding. I know that the teachers at her high school love her and want her there. And so I, I'm actually not, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm actually not even mad. Like, I'm just like, it it seems like a waste of time for you guys. (laughs) But if this is what we want to spend our time and money on, I'm up for that because I, I am a hundred percent sure that she needs to have a high school experience like her peers and that there's going to be a lot of time for life skills. My dream is that she's able to finish her high school at her home school with her friends and continue reading Romeo and Juliet and roaming the hallways and like doing what kids do in high school. And, you know, there's a part of me that's like, exhausted like really again again like what we just we keep doing this and you guys know that I'm not gonna ever take this offer and so I keep thinking about that kindergarten mom me and thinking about how um I just didn't like how's this gonna work how's this possible it was scary sending my kid into a high school of 4,000 kids it was scary. Like, what if, what if they're right? What if it's too hard for her? What if she's not going to be okay? What if she's not going to be safe? So she's crazy. Like she's a daredevil. She's outgoing. You know, we were at a carnival and, and her sister, she saw this ride called the zipper. Right. And it's like, it zips you up and zips you down and zips you up. And, um, and she, Amanda was there with her friend from school, her typical friend, because she had a lot of friends that wanted to hang out with her. And she went to the carnival with her friend and they both were like, let's go on the zipper. 
And my older daughter's like, you cannot put her on the zipper, mom. Do not put her on the zipper. And then Amanda's like, I'm going on the zipper. And then my older daughter's like, she can't do it. She's she's too little. It's too scary. It's going to be too hard. And so she goes, she's not even tall enough to go on the zipper. And Amanda like went to the sign and she's like, I'm tall enough. I'm doing the zipper. So I'm like, okay. And I put her on the zipper. And when I the door closed to the zipper, I was then like, this could be a big mistake. And then I looked at my daughter, her older sister, and she's crying. She's literally crying tears that I put her sister on the zipper. And so the zipper goes and we're both, I'm holding my breath. Her sister's crying. She gets off the zipper and she is laughing. I've never seen her so happy. Her and her friend were like, that was awesome. Let's do it again. And I literally think that's life, right? That's my life. The zipper. Like, okay. Hope you're fine. And she is, right? spoke with so many wonderful young advocates, families, and educators at the Tools Conference, and I wish I had time to publish them all. If you are an advocate for authentic, inclusive education, you know inclusion beyond simply placement. Know that you are not alone. And if you are still on the fence about whether inclusive education is possible, we are not done with our tour yet. It's time for our last stop. We're headed back to Washington to visit Ruby Bridges Elementary. Let's go. Ruby Bridges Elementary is located about 15 miles northeast of Seattle in Woodenville. Kind of a small town vibe just outside of a bustling downtown. It's my last day in Washington. And after fantastic visits to McMicken and Seahome, I wonder what more there is to experience. As I walk into the school, I'm met by Philly, part golden, part lab, 14-month-old service dog in training. And what I come to find out is Philly is just one of many supports that are routine here at Ruby Bridges. I settle into the conference room with the rest of the tour. 
Well, it has been um, an exciting week. My name is Rena Marie Leon Guerrero, and I am the lead for the demonstration sites. I want to, I'll turn it over to um, Principal Kathy and her Ruby Bridges um, team to share a bit about Ruby Bridges journey. And then most importantly, too, we're excited to get you all into classrooms and, and seeing instructional practices in, in action. Good morning. Well. I'm Kathy Davis. I'm the principal here at Ruby Bridges. It's nice to see all of you. We are really excited to share not only our school with you, but our journey. We have the pleasure of having a number of our staff in the room, and that's because they're part of our inclusionary practices team. They are the most important voices that you should hear before we head out into classrooms. We are a flexible service delivery school, so you're going to see and wonder as you go around, how did that person get here? How are they staffed? And then co-planning, collaboration, and co-teaching in our building really is a part of that robust plan for flexible service delivery. Hopefully you'll see some efficiency. That's something that's really important to us. We don't want people to be places not doing things important for kids, and that's something we've been working on. As I think about our journey for our particular school, we want schools where kids belong. We want communities that are thriving. We want relationships. Anna Lynn, a kindergarten teacher, starts off by sharing her journey from her initial desire to teach at Ruby Bridges purely to shorten her commute to eventually being sold on its inclusive model. Reflecting on her own struggles as a tongue-tied, struggling reader with speech difficulties, Anna began to think differently about supporting learners. So what do you do with a struggling reader? You put them in a small group, you pull them out, thinking the small group's better. Well, there's four of us struggling to read and we're reading out loud. We're not understanding anything. We're missing our grade level peers reading and having conversations about this text. And then we would never finish it. And then we'd start a new book and it drove me nuts. And so this model where we're pushing in and giving students as much as we can within the classroom was something I wanted to give students because it's what I would have wanted. Kim, Another kindergarten teacher talks about growing up in an affluent area, grappling with personal trauma and the assumptions that were made about her and her family's future, and realizing that educational equity includes learners with disabilities. And I realized, oh my gosh, my mind has been shut off to this whole other group of humans that have been around me the, my whole life. Um, people who are neurodiverse, who are physically diverse. I have been thinking that I'm focusing on educational justice when I've been omitting a huge part of our population. And then Kathy drilled down on what I feel like has been the heartbeat of inclusive practices in Washington and every conversation I've had with an inclusive school leader. Everybody's in with no exceptions. When you remove an option for opting out or removal from the menu, the entire game and dynamic changes. As long as that's an option, it, it's going to remain an option and that injustice will be pervasive, it will exist. And when we are on our growth edge and we are in our hard spots, we will divert to the thing that either feels easier or feels comfortable. So we don't have that as an option. That is not an option. It's never going to be an option at our school. That doesn't mean that we don't support in all kinds of different ways. We get classrooms ready for kids, not force kids to get ready for classrooms. There's no prerequisites for school. Everybody's in. No exceptions. And that's not all. Aside from the visual, social, emotional, and instructional supports that are embedded in the school, communication supports are evident as well. 
Here's Carolyn, one of the speech therapists at Ruby Bridges. We have put in a lot of tier one supports, communication supports. You'll see symbols all over the classroom. You'll see communication boards. You'll see core boards. You'll see lots of staff um, utilizing their own devices. You'll see many students that use communication devices. And then, of course, there is the master scheduling piece. Here is Robin, an English language development teacher. I have the opportunity here with our master schedule and our Wednesday collaborative meetings to team up with our general ed teachers and our all of our specialists and um, our special ed teachers. Everybody, we come together and we create this like amazing energy and problem solving. I feel like I am making such an impact that I wasn't able to do before. And I'm learning and growing as an educator and can be an advocate for every student in this building. Educator after educator was doubling down on reimagining how they were serving all learners. Clearly, for Ruby Bridges, this wasn't only a special education initiative. It was school-wide. It was their culture. As I walk around the school, I see children with a wide variety of support needs. Families and educators. Altogether, there were no special spaces. Everyone belonged wherever they were. I was reminded of a dream that I had when I was a special educator in my previous school district. A dream of an empty, self-contained classroom. Why was it empty? Because all of the learners that would typically occupy that space were included into the life of the school community. But at Ruby Bridges, it's a reality. In fact, Kathy was telling me that when architects designed the school, there were still classrooms that would have typically been designated as segregated self-contained classrooms. But what did the team at Ruby Bridges do? They refused to use them as disability-specific spaces and turned them into flex spaces that anyone could use. My dream realized. Still... A question is on my mind. Just like McMicken and Seahome, Ruby Bridges is one school, one of 16 demonstration sites across Washington. And I'm wondering, how is Ruby Bridges or any other demonstration site influencing the practices of the district that it is part of? Who are you recording for? So I'm the director of communications for MCIE. The Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education. Oh, wow. And I'm doing a podcast series about inclusive schools. So this is my third site. I visited um, McMicken uh, in... Seahome. Yes. Highlight. Seahome. And then now... Okay. Yes. Um, so my question is, how is Ruby Bridges, what's going on at Ruby Bridges, influencing the rest of the district as far as inclusive practices? Ebenezer Washington, assistant principal of Bear Creek Campus. I think for me in particular, because I'm in a building, is like we have what's called a FSA program, which is usually students with significantly high needs, and it. At this school, it was self-contained. And coming here to see what they were doing helped me think that, like, for middle school, I could actually create a schedule that wasn't self-contained. So here, I feel like you can't tell who's who. That's what I wanted for our FSA students. And so it's been helping think 
through that stuff. And so um, in the last year, we've been able to get students out of self-contained and at least into one elective and a PE class. So we're slowly doing the work. Right. I would agree with Ebenisha. It's, it's the slow kind of peel-off rollout. So I supervise five elementaries in the East region, and you'll see things like master schedule being done there or the intervention times that we observed here at uh, Ruby Bridges. You'll see intervention blocks built into some of those elementary schedules. So they're able to take some of that learning and like the concrete pieces and go apply them at their schools. But it is a slower process because... I think the benefit of Ruby Bridges is you've got the whole school on board, on board ready to go, doing their work. And so we're finding pockets of people who want to do it that are moving forward with that. Right. But inevitably, not everybody wants to do it. I would say that's accurate. Um, I, but I, I, I think, I, I think there's, there's <laughs> like work to be done because they have a perception. Yeah. And when you have a perception yeah. of what happens with special education, then you're not willing to do the work. Once you can show them something different, like if every teacher had release time to come spend time here, it would change their entire world. And I think that that's what we should be doing as a district uh, is offering that. Like we have this site and Kokanee, which are great sites to, to watch special education integration in which you don't know what's happening, who's the teacher, who's the para, who's the specialist. We need to have that at every school in our district. Yeah. It's hard to envision until you see it. I think that's it. Even seeing PE today was really great for me because I've been helping in a, at another school where they're trying to do more push into PE and it's been really challenging. And then I come here and I'm like, well, these are all the foundational pieces we were missing. Right. So I think you need, you need the opportunity to, to learn from each other. As I wrap up my visit to Ruby Bridges, I want to chat with the education leaders at OSPI about how they got here and where they see the project going in the future. My name is Tanya May, and I serve as the Assistant Superintendent of Special Education for the Washington Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction. My name is Cassie Martin. I'm the Executive Director of Special Education at the Washington State Office of the Superintendent of Public Instruction. How many times have you had to practice that? Yeah, we put a lot of people a lot to of sleep. Words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, my big question is, from my perspective, looking at the state of Washington, it, it feels like there was a lot of things that happened at once for IPP to happen. Is that a correct impression? I think you're right in that there were multiple system pressures that un- unrolled or, or arrived here at the same time. Um, if we if we wanted to pick maybe the the first one, we had some pretty significant change in leadership in our special education division. After the previous assistant superintendent had been there for over 20 years. Um, and so that was already a pretty big change. And it, and it brought uh, a strong leader from another state who had, who came in with other perspectives. And the way that these conversations first started at the state level, Cassie can talk with you about the grassroots movement more on, on, uh, in our schools. Uh, but at the state, we started to, to look at our data. And what we saw is 
About 72% of our students are eligible for special education under either a specific learning disability, communication disorder, or other health impairment, which includes attention deficit disorder and, and hyperactivity disorder. So what we know of that population from the research is that with supports, those students should be able to be successful on grade level content in general ed. When we compared that 72%, what we saw was our, our, our amount of total students with disabilities accessing general ed to 80 to 100% of the day was only 56%. We had a 20% discrepancy, even if we didn't like dig into anything else. Um, and then there was a report from the National Center for Learning Disabilities uh, showing that Washington ranked 44th out of 50 states for the amount of, of access our students with disabilities had to, to general ed. Those, those conversations converging were galvanizing. And that was, at least at the state level, across all leadership partners, the legislature, our own agency leadership, our different organizations, things really felt like they started to move, right? When we think about that Judy Human quote, right, that we don't ever see progress at the rate we would want, we push and push and push and push. And then at some point, you just, you have a moment where it tips. That is how it felt like it tipped for Washington. So you were starting this work. You were helping to push that rock up the hill. Yeah. And I've, you know, um, not fondly called a lot of the work that we were doing at that time when it's more grassroots kind of leading to a vapor trail. So what happens, you do this great work with specific students in schools, and you'd see this, these tremendous outcomes. Those students would graduate on to the next school. More students would come into that school, and the schools are still relying on those same practices they were before instead of evolving their systems to become more inclusive. I was having these experiences where I've seen great success with students only to have to go back to the same organizations, the same school buildings to do the work over and over again, where really what I should be doing is fading myself out while they while they build up their systems and their resources, their capacity. So, you know, there was this conversation shifting in Washington state around equity and thinking about what equity really meant and thinking about the inclusion of students with disabilities um, that have intersecting identities. And um, those conversations started to happen. And so what started to happen is when people were having more kind of what they would call an equity symposium. So this is more conversational, not actually moving the work forward. People started talking about students with disabilities. People started becoming curious about how that fit into that equity lens. And so what we started seeing was more professional development in our schools around inclusive education, but not really moving past that first stage of having those conversations and engaging in that kind of preliminary professional development. But with IPP, what happened there is we started getting all the levels of the system involved. So, um, you know, I felt a tremendous amount of, of uh, support as someone who had been feeling like I've been trying to do this for years and years and years, and just I wasn't making the kind of progress that I knew was possible. And then with IPP, a whole other world of resources also opened up to me. So I wasn't in my position where I was at that time aware of all the different professional organizations that I could tap into, that I could use as resources, that I could collaborate with. And so what the Inclusionary Practices Professional Development Project did was widen all of our knowledge around what the, the resources that were available, um, led to those of us who were doing the work kind of individually to have a team to work with, and provided the resources and funds and the conversation, again, at the state level, at the local level, at the school level, at the community level, that needed to happen to actually make the work move forward. And it felt like there was some accountability there, because a lot of times, attached to funds, 
is accountability. So we knew that we had these funds to do this work. So what were we going to do to get the most out of it? And um, again, I mentioned this when we were at McMicken the other day, but what could have turned into a bunch of organizations really competing for you know the work turned into this really extensive collaborative network that just keeps growing and growing and building and building. And we're learning more about the ways that we in Washington State want to work with one another and how we can team with each other and how we can leverage our resources um, through the course of our journey through this inclusionary practices project. Yeah, yeah. And we, we tried to really bring a deliberate systems change framework right to the conversation. So so I, I I opened by talking about those opportunities that help to create a sense of urgency for change. Um, and then as as Cassie shared, so then what we wanted to do was build a coalition uh, in a way that we were careful about saying who which partners might have concerns about this work, right? That might might in some way resist some of the changes. Let's include them right from the, the beginning so that they are co-designing it with us um, and can feel like they they have a part in it, uh, in supporting it. And then, you know, so that, that vision started to form um, our theory of action. And then we started with the willing. Um, when there was a pretty significant amount of funding tied to this. Um, and for some of our school systems, the first question we received was, do I have to do this? And what we said was, well, no, right? It, it is voluntary. Um, and we would urge you to make sure that you are talking with your communities. Uh, if you're going to pass on this, make sure that everyone in your system understands that decision and had a voice in it. Um, and so we, there was a pretty significant amount of folks who wanted to be part of it, about 100 pilot school districts out of our, you know, over 300. Um, and then over time, by the second year, that grew. And then again, over time, this has really grown. We wanted to see those quick wins. And then we're always looking at how, how do we build in that sustainability? Because we don't want this to be a project. We want this to be a movement that results in lasting change for uh, all of our education partners. Right. So where's IPP now as far as where are y'all going? <laughs> and what are the barriers to realizing the vision? Um, where it is now, um, I think we still acknowledge that it is seen as a special ed initiative. Um, and, you know, that's fair. That's special ed funding. It was generated out of, you know, conversations around students with disabilities. So what what we're trying to bring to the conversation now is it can't live there, right? It, it just, that's not how education works. And so um, we've had our, our partners in, uh, across general ed have been very supportive. And what we want to make sure now is that that shared responsibility, right? That we're co-designing it really deliberately uh, across those partnerships. So that's that's one piece. Um you know, the other thing, you know, you talk about barriers, there there always are going to be. Um, some are some are consistent and might kind of wave up and down, and others are new and unexpected. And so some of the conversations that, that we've been having are around um that that preparation piece, right? Are we are we making sure that our pre-service 
educators and leaders are coming out of their programs equipped to do what we saw today. Um, we're also really digging into uh, some collaboration with our education association to really talk about bargaining, right? We, we want every educator to feel supported to do this work. It's not about taking away or asking to do more with less. It is, however, asking them to maybe consider doing it differently. And so is there a way that we can capture that level of support, that different kind of support um, in, in our bargaining language? Uh, and then, you know, just working as closely as we can with our partners in, in a multi-tier system of support framework, because that way what we can hope for is that every student, right, doesn't matter what their label or, or designation is, every student gets what they need when they need it. And I think you've probably heard the term used over the last three days over and again, which is transformation. So people are talking about being transformative. So we're not talking about fixing a system that's not working for kids. We're talking about changing the entire system. So, you know, my fear is always that um, similar to kind of what Tanya was saying around how do we turn this into a movement where it's sustainable over time. Um I don't want to keep trying to fix the problem. We don't want to keep trying to fix the problem. So we end up going back to the 1990s all over again. We're talking about mainstreaming or we're talking about fitting kids into a system that doesn't work. What we need to do is transform the larger system so it does work for everyone. And if these demonstration sites you've seen through the course of the last three days, they weren't focused on, oh, here's how we provide special education services solely. They were focused on how are we going to transform our entire community so it works for everyone. And so really taking that transformative lens and similar to what are in alignment with what Tanya was saying, by engaging all of our partners across the entire system to think about what that transformational change needs to look like, I feel like that's that's where we're going in this work. Yeah. Yeah. And acknowledging, you know, some some fair questions and pushback that we've been getting from our, our family partners. Uh, has been around. Sure, we're we're sh we're seeing some really impressive changes in our least restrictive environment data. Right, we are showing that students are spending more time in general ed. Is that enough? Right, like is it enough that their desk is in the room? And so the conversations now are moving into, well, how how it, as a state do we define meaningful inclusion? What does that look like and feel like? And one of our partners said to me, well. Because I asked, how will we know when we've been successful at building inclusive learning environments? And this colleague said, our, our students and families will tell us. And we said, great, what will they say? And so that's where our conversations are going now. We're, we're actually talking with all of our community partners. And we're taking the themes from that to build out indicators for us of how, how is it that we know. I can't believe it, folks. We've only got one more chapter left. And if you're like me, there are still some unanswered questions. When I first came into this podcast series, I thought I knew what an inclusive school was. But I'm beginning to realize some of my preconceived notions were incorrect. So what really is an inclusive school? And is there really only one way to get there? And where is there, anyway? And what about the friends we've made along the way? How are Natalia, Harper, and Sevi doing? And you know, the one question that has haunted me for years 
not just as I've been producing this series. Why does it have to be so hard to get authentic, inclusive education? That's next time on Inclusion Stories. Inclusion Stories is written, edited, sound designed, mixed, and mastered by me, Tim Villegas. It is a production of the Maryland Coalition for Inclusive Education. For more information about inclusive education or how MCIE can partner with you and your school or district, visit mcie.org. A huge shout out to our sponsors. We couldn't have done this project without you. Communication first. Roots of Inclusion, the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates, the Thompson Policy Institute on Disability, iSecure Privacy, the White Family, the Teague Family, and to our supporters at the Washington Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, as well as our friends at Club 21 in Pasadena, California. We are grateful for your partnership. Special thanks to our friends at Ruby Bridges Elementary School and the fine people with the Herring Center at the University of Washington. Thanks to Greg Drews and The Truth for giving us permission to use their song, The Light, from the album Yellow Rose as our theme. Check it out wherever you stream your music. Also, thank you very much to our friend, Nikki Costabile, for letting us use All I Ever Wanted for the end credits of Chapter 4. One more chapter of Inclusion Stories coming your way, so watch your podcast feeds closely. And if you love this series, we would appreciate a rating on Spotify and or a review on Apple Podcasts or better yet, share it with a school administrator. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Heather Brown Hom. I am a parent of a 12 year old with Down syndrome, and I'm also an educator, both general education and special education, and I'm an inclusion specialist. I think in California, it's this hesitance towards change, this fear of change. There's this fear of commitment to join this movement for how many years, at least in my district, we have a really high turnover rate for directors of special ed. I've been in our district for my son, Um, He is in sixth grade. This is our fifth director of special education. And when I tell people that, they're like, yeah, that that sounds about right here in California. And that's that's really disillusioning. So I think that's why I've been more focused on that bottom up. You know, these teachers are going to stay. Absolutely. I've got to build those relationships with them, offer help where I can. I think I got to look at other ways to go top down. 
from MCIE.